Good morning, everyone. The Bible reading today is from James chapter 2, the first part up to verse 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, thank you, Caroline. Um, last night, I got a text from Richard McClelland. Uh, so if you don't know Richard, he, uh, he and his family have gone to Thailand, and over the last month, they um, appealed for underwear uh, to, to give uh, to an orphanage over there. And so I got a photo of Richard and the family with the orphans holding up the undies that you donated. So well done. And I'll put that in the email this week with the photo and everything that they said. So uh, if you want to get that update, please, please have a look there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to this important topic of how to treat people, and particularly people that are unknown to us and people different to us, we confess that we all need help because it's so easy to love people that are like us, but so harder to love people who are different. So please instruct us and help us to have faith and wisdom that comes from you. We want to see people the way you see people and we want to treat people the way you treat them. And we all have work to do in this area, so please do your work now in us through your word, by your spirit, bring that deep conviction and that heart change and help me to be clear in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the topic before us today is uh, from James to his favoritism. So verse one, my brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Verse nine, if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. So the topic is favoritism, strange topic really, when um, you know, I look at you and there's lots of people who I know are carrying big loads in other areas of your life and we've all got busy lives and we've all got things we're dealing with and so today we've come and God wants us to think about favoritism which you might think is a bit 
angular. But I want to say that um, I hope you'll find what God says is helpful and deep and liberating and also necessary. The book of James is all about wisdom. And rather than calling this talk being wise about favoritism, instead I've called it being wise about mercy. Reason being that although James begins talking about favoritism in verse one, by verse 13 at the end, he's wanting us to be wise about mercy. Because those two are connected. If we're wise to mercy, then we won't be showing favoritism, right? So we need to be wise about mercy. Now, to get into the issue, I want to begin by asking some questions, three questions, and then there'll be four points of wisdom, okay? So first up, if we're wondering why James does raise this topic in the first place, it's worthwhile asking, what are the two constants in life that we are always dealing with? Well, the first is trials and difficulties. These are always there, but they can easily become times of temptation to think less of God. God is against me when he, when he isn't. God doesn't care when he does. We might think God must be evil, even though he's good. And that's why in chapter one, James begin by saying, by saying what we need is wisdom, which God gives to those who ask him, the wisdom from above. But to get that wisdom, we need to listen to what God's saying in the Bible. And as you heard last week, I wasn't here, I was at my daughter's baptism, which was a great event, by the way. My parents came, and great sermon, yay. Excellent, it was good. And um, just a delightful moment. But um, Brian came and preached, and good on him for fitting into our series. But he would have said that to get wisdom, we um, need to listen to what God's saying in the Bible, but that's not automatic. Listening, deep listening, is a moral activity. We have to rid our lives of filth. It requires intention, it requires sustained commitment. We need to remember, we need to not forget, we need to do. And if we do all that, it will really listen and God will give us this new wisdom and perspective on our trials which will enable us even to rejoice because of them. As strange as that seems. So the first constant we're always dealing in our life is trials and troubles, and James deals with that in chapter one. And we have to assess them with the wisdom of faith that the Bible gives us. But similarly, the second constant in, in our lives uh, you have to also assess with faith, and that is people, people. We're always dealing with people. There's people in our family, people at work, people at school, people we come across in the course of the day, some people known to us, some people complete strangers. There's people we encounter who are very similar to us, we find that easy, there are people we encounter who are very, very different to us, we find that harder. And this includes people at church, right? Because you don't get to pick who's at church with you, right? God kind of pulls us together. This ragtag bunch of People you might not have chosen if it was up to you, but yet we're together. And of all the people in our lives, James says similarly, we must assess people with faith, just like we assess trials and difficulties with the wisdom of faith, so too with people. We must assess them with faith, not face, F-A-C-E. Because when James says, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism, Literally, he says, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ must not receive others according to their face. Right? Their externals. 
In other words, he's saying we must assess people, we must treat people according to the wisdom that comes from faith and not the wisdom of their face, of how they look. Now, this is different to what we naturally do, isn't it? When we naturally assess people, we often get it wrong. Sometimes we fear them. Sometimes we overly honour them and fawn all over them. Sometimes we dislike people, sometimes we envy them. Sometimes we ignore them, sometimes we show them preferential treatment. James says we can't do that. He says you can't be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and show favoritism by treating people according to their face. Just can't do that. The problem is we do. And that's why we're often confused, why we often or sometimes exalt people inappropriately and sometimes we diminish people inappropriately because we assess them according to their face, not according to the wisdom of faith, right? Second question, in how many ways does favoritism work? Well, the answer is thousands. We can treat people preferentially because of how they look or according to their age or how much money they have or don't have or don't appear to have, because that's different, isn't it? Or how friendly they are, or according to what power they have, or how well-spoken they are, or what school they did or didn't go to, or how similar they are to us, because it's very easy to love people similar to us, harder when people are different. And the treatment can go both ways. One person can meet a powerful person and fawn over them, someone else might meet that same person and attack them. You might meet a younger person and envy them, or you might meet a younger person and despise them. So it can cut many ways. Third question, why does showing favoritism matter? What's the real issue? Well, James spells it out in verse four, for example, he says it matters because when you show favoritism, you discriminate among yourselves. When you show favoritism, you become judgmental, you wrongly look down upon some, and then you do so with a thinking that is evil, and that's why favoritism is so destructive to fellowship. Or, verse six, showing favoritism insults the poor whereas God never insults the poor. And showing favoritism elevates the rich, and the rich are those whom God often brings down. You know, throughout the Bible, God repeatedly lifts up the humble poor, and he repeatedly brings down the rich, which means if our ch if in our church, if we relate to one another in a way which exalts the rich at the expense of the poor, guess what? We are operating in a way contrary to the gospel. Or then verse nine, showing favoritism breaks Jesus' law, we're told, and therefore it's a sin against people and it's a sin against Jesus. And then verse 12, if we show favoritism, we need to remember that we ourselves are going to be assessed and judged. God has put a new life in us and we'll be assessed and judged according to how we've lived it. And all this means that you and I need wisdom. And so it would be good if after our formal time here and we move into the informal time, you know, a wonderful outcome would be if each of us prayed a silent prayer, God, give me the wisdom to assess people according to the wisdom of faith, not according to their face, to how I judge them by their externals. Okay, 
Well, we need wisdom because we're inclined to show favoritism and God says what we really need is wisdom about mercy. So now very quickly, we're going to step through four brief points of wisdom that God gives us in this passage. Here they are. Remember God's son, remember God's mercy, remember God's command and remember God's judgment. Remember God's son, God's mercy, God's command and God's judgment. Okay, first of all, verses one to four, remember God's son. James anchors his instruction in the one we believe in. He says, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, actually, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is only mentioned twice in the book of James, and this is one of the moments. The first one was in chapter one, verse one or two. And then there's this, this is important. He calls Jesus glorious. James, of course, was Jesus' younger brother, his younger half-brother. But James, throughout Jesus' life, had not given any glory to Jesus as he grew up. James was not one of the 12 disciples. There were another two disciples who were named James, James the son of Alphaeus and James the son of Zebedee, but they weren't this James, this James was James the son of Joseph, Jesus' sort of stepdad or something. So James was Jesus' half-brother, his younger brother. And most likely, therefore, it wasn't until Jesus had risen from the dead and there was some encounter we haven't got a record of that James would have seen Jesus in his glory and imagine the recalibration that that must have been for this man. James realized that Jesus, his older half-brother, was the glorious Lord and the glorious Christ, the Savior King. Wow. So James calls Jesus glorious. Now, why does he mention this, specifically in the context of favoritism? Because a deep understanding of Jesus' glory quickly changes how you see other people, right? If you are someone who is growing in your appreciation of Jesus' glory, then you will be growing in your understanding of the significance of him to lay all that glory aside and to humble himself and to go to a cross and die for the sins and the sinners of the world. That's a massive thing. And if we're beginning to understand the extent of that sacrifice, what it must have been for someone so glorious to do that, then that recalibrates how you see people because you'll suddenly see people with worth, the people for whom Jesus died, right? That changes how you look at poor people, unattractive people, disabled people, children, the elderly. Whoever it is that you're tempted to look down on when you assess them according to their face. Because suddenly we'll see if Jesus who is glorious did that for them, then each of them is of immense value. And so we calibrate, we recalibrate how we see people in the light of how Jesus sees them. But it also works the other way, not just for poor people but for rich. Think of the people who you're tempted to favor, right? 
Now, often it's the rich, often it's the powerful, often it's the impressive, it's the good-looking. Maybe it's people like yourself. Maybe it's people very different to yourself. Now, if you have a growing appreciation of Jesus' immense glory as Lord and Christ, then that relativizes the glory you see in others. To give another illustration, I want you to think of the sun, all right? Now, our planet Earth is large, but it's nothing compared to the size of the sun. Did you know you would fit 1.3 million planet Earths in the volume of the sun? But of course, the sun itself is only a medium star. The largest star so far discovered has a wonderful name, U.Y. Scuti. <laughs> but it has a radius 1,700 times that of the radius of the sun. It is so large that it would take five billion suns to fit in it to make up its volume. Now here we are on planet Earth thinking that our sun is pretty big. Well, not when you compare it to something that is superly glorious like that. And so you see how, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, right, superly glorious, how ridiculous it would be for us on planet Earth to show favoritism to one person because of the face that they present to us, which we think is pretty impressive. You get it? So the first point of wisdom is to remember God's glorious son. It recalibrates how you think about people. Secondly, remember God's mercy, verses five to eight. The mercy of the Lord is completely upside down to the world's standards. The world says mercy should be shown to the deserving. And then it applies its own criteria. It's like if you remember, if this ever happened to you at school, when, you know, the teacher said, okay, we're playing a game, there's two teams and there's two team captains and they are the impressive and popular people, and then they get to pick, and everyone lines up against the wall, and they get to pick who's in their team, and you're one of the last people picked, right? Did that ever happen to you? Yes, it happened to me. All right, um, okay. And who do they pick? They pick the popular, they pick the attractive, they pick the athletic, they pick the winners. All right, now that is completely the opposite of what the Lord does. Because instead of choosing the, those who are rich in the eyes of the world, God chooses those who are poor in the eyes of the world, those whom the Lord judges as poor. He picks the people that the world would not pick. Now, imagine mercy shown to someone was a, a substance. Okay, what the world does is it grabs a sieve and it tries to strain it out and then when it gives mercy, only hands out a few grains. All right, that's not mercy. Shakespeare realized this, remember, the merchant of Venice? The quality of mercy is not strained, okay? Mercy isn't something you can strain out in a sieve and then distribute in granular amounts to people who deserve it. That is not mercy. Mercy is something you pour out as a lump sum to those who don't deserve it. You just pour it over them. And God's choice as to who he shows mercy to is always people who don't deserve it. Not in his eyes, not in the world eyes. This recalibrates things, doesn't it? If you think you're a deserving person, but you know God's shown you mercy, well, guess what? You might need to recalibrate how you think about yourself. All right? 
And if you think, I could never deserve God's mercy, guess what, you don't need to. He just pours it on you anyway. How wonderful. So, God's choice as to who he shows mercy is always to people who don't deserve it, not in his eyes, not in the world's eyes. It's you and it's me. Why is it that church is full of odd bods? You know, you come to church and you think, I want there to be people like me. You know, I find it so easy to connect with people like me. And then someone comes up to you and they're in your face and you think, I hadn't really woken up this morning thinking that I'd deal with someone like you. Why is church full of odd bods? And actually, if you think you're the, you're the sensible person, well, you ought to ask what other people think of you. I'm under no illusion that I'm an odd bod. I'm an odd bod. I'm first amongst, right, okay. Why is church full of odd bods? Because it is God's delight. He delights in this. Church is not full of people who can walk around, boast about themselves, saying, aren't I great? Aren't I impressive? Wasn't God on the right ticket when he chose me? Church is full of people who say, I am astounded. I'm overwhelmed that God could have chosen me. Because if I was him, I wouldn't have. But he did. He's a God who's rich in mercy and grace, you see. He brings us together. He chooses the poor, those who are particularly poor in spirit. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, those who mourn over their sin, those who know they're helpless, who know they're sinful, who know they need a savior. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, they realize their own righteousness is inadequate, it's putrid, it's defective, it's just sub-average, it's not acceptable, it's inconsistent, it's disappointing. And they long for a different righteousness that comes to them through Christ. They're the poor. And James says, if that's you, and you see yourself and you're poor and you're wise, and you're wise to God's mercy, guess what? The last thing you're gonna do in church is to say to a rich person who comes in, will you take the seat of honor? And the last thing you're gonna do if you're overwhelmed by God's mercy is to say to the poor, will you sit at the back? Because God chooses the poor. Ten years ago, I saw this in India. I was there with a team from Trinity Churches. Andrew Severin was with me. We were teaching pastors and their wives, and we had the privilege of being shown round the compound of the organisation we were with, and the compound was very impressive. Um, it served poor people literally from the cradle to the grave. And so there were two school boarding houses, one for boys, one for girls. There were training facilities for when people graduated from high school and they needed a trade. Um, there were businesses that they'd set up for people to go in so they could have employment. And at the end of life, there was an even an oncology ward, which in a Hindu society is very strange, right? But the Christians had one. And seeing all of this, I was blown away and I asked them, so all these kids who come in you know, and work, how many get converted? They said, oh, 100%. And they saw the look of amazement on my face and they said, look, you have to understand, the orphans that come to us, that are brought to us, come from the lowest caste in Hindu society, the Dalits. These are the sewer cleaners. They are the garbage collectors. And if you're born into that caste, you can never get out of it, right? You're always stuck there. 
But then they hear the gospel, that the God of glory loved them enough to come down lower than where they are, to buy them a way out, and that believe in him, you are elevated and you become a forgiven and precious son or daughter of God and an inheritor with Christ of the universe. No wonder they respond, right? In the first century when James was writing, guess what, the majority of people in the Roman world were slaves. They were poor, they were the oppressed, they were needy. And no wonder therefore that most, the majority of the Christian church in the first century were converted slaves. They heard the gospel, they responded to it because they knew they were needy. And they knew that in Christ they could have dignity and honor and restoration. But of course, um, some people also who were converted were the masters, the, the rich, the powerful. And some of those, yes, although they had confessed allegiance to Christ, you read the book of James, and you read between the lines and you work out they actually hadn't changed how they were treating their slaves. And in fact, they were oppressing them and they were ripping them off and they were rubbing their nose in the dirt and they were ignoring them. And they expected the seat of honor when they came into church. Now, we may not have that discrepancy, right, in our society today, in our church, but you do see that there will be clear application for us at our church, in how we welcome newcomers, for example. Not just the people out the front, how we do it inside. Do we welcome people who are different to us? Also in how we relate to one another as church members, do we go out of our way to speak to people who we think are odd, who we think might be different to us? Or do we divert ourselves and get out of their way so that we don't have to talk to them? In other words, do we assess people according to their face or to the wisdom of faith, which holds that God favors those who don't easily fit in? You know, I'm so delighted that our church is often, I'm often told that our church is a welcoming place. And that's lovely, isn't it? Uh, but normally that's in reference to the first visit. Okay, what's often harder for newcomers when they come is one month, two months, three months in, when they're no longer new, they're familiar, but they're still looking for friends. Would you, for example, sign up in Christmas in July with the hope of sharing in a meal with someone who is different to you, who you don't know? I hope you would. Because Christ brings us together and he shows mercy on us all, right? So that's the first point of wisdom. That was long, wasn't it? Remember God's son. Second, remember God's mercy. That's the second point. Now we're up to. Third, remember God's commandment, verses eight to 11. And now James quotes the, the command of Jesus who told us to love our neighbor as ourselves. although Jesus wasn't the first to say it, of course, because he was quoting from the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, 18. But by Jesus quoting it and by him endorsing it and by him applying it to his disciples, this becomes to us a royal law, a command from our king, all right? In other words, this is not optional. We don't get to choose whether we will love our neighbors as ourselves, we have to do it, because Jesus our king has told us to do it. And if we take it seriously, it forces us to think. It forces us to ask of another person, if I was in their shoes, what would the loving thing that I would want 
done to me and then it forces us to think, well, that's what I will do for them. Now, if that's what God required his people in the Old Testament to do, how much more should New Testament believers do the same because we have had Jesus come and show us what love looks like and God has given us his spirit to empower us to do the same. We can't love our neighbour if we only ever think, what do I want to do? The command to love your neighbour is positive, it's proactive, it's intentional, it forces us to go out from beyond ourselves. You see, um, it's different to the morality of the world. The morality of the world says, um, I'm good if I don't harm other people, right, if I don't hurt anyone else. And that's what goodness is. That's what the morality of the world says. But Jesus' command is not don't do harm. It's more proactive than that, isn't it? It's do good to others. It forces us beyond ourselves. It forces us to go out, love them. Now, to the person who says no, as long as I do no harm to others, I can still play favourites and be the moral person, James says you can't. He says in verse eight, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you play favorites, guess what? You sin. And that means you have broken the whole law. You have shot a hole in your canoe. It only takes one hole to sink a canoe. So even though you may think yourself good and you say, I haven't committed adultery and I haven't murdered anyone, if you have shown favoritism, guess what? You've shot a hole in the canoe of the law, right? You are guilty, you're not following Jesus' command. James's instruction that we not show favoritism comes from the command given to us by Jesus himself, the command he has given to us as our king. Our doing it is not optional. And that's the third point of wisdom, remember God's command. Okay, the last point from verses 12 to 13 is remember God's judgment. Now, I have to be I want to be really clear here. It's not as if a believer in Jesus' destination, final destination, remains unsure. It doesn't, right? That's been settled. Christ died for us so that we would be with him. But it does mean that your reward will be settled for the stewardship of the life you have lived as his person. I'll say it again, it's not that our final destination still remains settling, God in his mercy has settled that once and for all, but what will be settled for believers on the day of judgment is our reward. That is, um, how we've lived as his children in the new life that he has shown us and empowered us to live. James says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom which means the commandment to love your neighbour as yourself, that's the law. That command is a law that gives freedom because it isn't narrow, it's not specific, it is broad in application, it doesn't specify limits, it's general enough to allow us to think, to apply freely as we move through each day. It's a great law because you just have the one thing in your head, how do I love my neighbour as myself, but the applications are, you know, are a myriad, (laughs) okay. It's freeing because in obeying it, we live the lives that God intended us to be, to do. 
And because of Christ, we can obey it without worrying about punishment because God has already swamped us with his mercy and when he comes, he's going to find each of us who believe in Jesus washed clean through his blood. And when God looks at our lives, therefore, he will be able to see the fruit of mercy in our lives for those who have been washed by him, right? But if, suppose, he comes across a churchgoer and he sees no fruit at all, no mercy, favoritism, 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 all throughout their life, if we have failed to treat people with mercy, well, what does that show? Um, it might indicate that we have never actually received God's mercy. Okay. So we get to the end. We need wisdom about people because people are a constant in our lives and in dealing with people, instead of assessing them according to their face and playing favorites, God gives us four points of wisdom. Remember God's son, he's glorious. That changes how you think about people. Remember God's mercy, how he answered us when we were poor and when we called out for help. Remember God's command to love like Jesus loved and to think about what others need and do it. And remember God's judgment, each day is a chance to live a life that's shaped by mercy and love towards others. If those four points are too much for you to remember, then you could take the last four words of the passage actually, and that would be enough. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, live by that, dwell on it. Because the better we grasp the mercy that God has shown to us, the better we will be able to love instead of showing favoritism. Father in heaven, um, help us, to each of us individually and help us as church collectively to better and more fully and deeper grasp your mercy that you've shown to us and help us to better and more fully grasp the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Change the way we think about other people and how we relate to them and help us to relate to people with the wisdom of faith, not according to people's face. Change us, Heavenly Father. We want to be people who love like Jesus loved. Amen.